please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and just for the record, this will be week number 22, which means this is broadcast number 22, and so far we have accumulated 12 and a half hours of material. So let's start today, if we may, from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as to be walked according to the flesh. So once again, the Apostle Paul is having to defend himself, and you probably couldn't help but notice a slight change of tone from the previous chapters. Uh, Chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12 especially, is somewhat more abrupt. And somebody said this, that chapters 1 to 9 were Paul's address to the repentant wing of the church in Corinth. And chapters 10, 11, 12, and also chapter 13 would be his address to the unrepentant wing of the church in Corinth. Again, you've got at least two issues going on in Corinth. You've got this character going around, slandering Paul, trying to undermine Paul. And he was able to cause a lot of divisions. He was able to cause a lot of pain. And some of the people thought that Paul was a fake, a phony, and was only in it for the money. And that was very painful to Paul. You also had the incest incident, which was put down. Not straight away, but it was dealt with. Which goes back to the awful reality that saved people can sin. Saved people can sin pretty badly. Never think that somehow you are above sin. And if you think that you don't sin, I would suggest you read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. But Paul starts off from 10.1, beseeching them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Paul's saying this, that as Christ was meek and gentle, and he certainly was, so am I. Contrast that to the apostate or the false brethren going around, offering themselves as being very pious, very righteous, very upright, like the Pharisees. And he's saying this, that that crowd are the fakers. That crowd are the hypocrites. They're the modern-day Pharisees. Whereas I, Paul, am like Christ. I'm meek and I'm gentle. I'm the real deal. And again, why he would have to reiterate his credentials time after time, his integrity, I don't know. And yet I probably do know, because if he didn't reiterate his credentials, his integrity, he would have had to put up with this continual onslaught because he knew that if he didn't speak up his ministry would perhaps be over his epistles would be questioned in fact just this past week a so-called scholar was uh, looking at from the greek quote-unquote and he said this that when paul speaks about women being silent in the churches and uh, being in submission so on so forth he said that that statement hasn't been found or isn't discoverable in the oldest manuscripts. And you know, it made a pretty substantial impact earlier this week. Of course, others came along and said, no, he's incorrect. It's in the oldest manuscripts. But you see, you just get one mischief maker like him, and people start to question scripture. I was in a clip of a Jesuit who was discussing with a journalist about the census found in the Gospel of Luke. And he said, well, Luke got it wrong. There was never a census. The scripture is an error. Could you imagine him saying that about the papacy? Could you imagine him saying that the papacy isn't infallible? 
Could you imagine him saying that Mary wasn't bodily assumed into heaven? Of course you couldn't. The Catholic Church is obsessed with Mary and the papacy, and yet that reprobate, that so-called Holy Father, or that uh, Jesuit priest known as the Society of Jesus, has the audacity, has a great shame to come out and say that Luke got it wrong when he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But this is the damage that people can do if they allow their tongues to run away with them. But I beseech you, verse 2, that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So on the one hand, he wants to be calm, cool, he wants to be focused, he wants to be meek and mild to the wing of the church, which has repented, which has humbled itself. And on the other hand, he wants to be stern, strict, firm, with the crowd that are going around causing divisions. Go back to First Corinthians chapter 1. It speaks about those that follow Paul, those that uh, follow Peter, and those that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got three cliques. You've got three groups of people. And for today, we would suggest that such is a type of denominationalism. We walk, or we walked, latter part of verse 2, according to the flesh. Well, of course, the Apostle Paul spoke about his battle with his old nature, Romans chapter 7. In fact, uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 makes it very clear that there isn't a just man on earth that does good and doesn't sin. A slight paraphrase, but the, you, know, you get the idea that nobody is good, only one but God. So Paul, of course, walked according to the flesh. He was a real man, but he wasn't carnal in the sense that these false teachers were. Let's keep reading on. Look at verse 3, please. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled. Thought life. If you're not careful, your thoughts can just mess you up. Your thoughts can just pull you down. Your thoughts can destroy you. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 9. In the Gospels, we read about the Lord's people, uh, his apostles. And in the Gospels, you've got the apostles, also referred to as the disciples, very much learning on the job. And I'll say this, that they were saved, but they weren't born again. They were saved through imputation, much like we are today. But those of us today which are saved, we're born again. Whereas those in the Gospels weren't born again. In fact, nobody was born again until the day of Pentecost. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, look at verse uh, 51, if you will. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfast, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And sent messengers before his face, and they went, and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. So, the Lord is out and about. And here you've got the Messiah on his way to Jerusalem, but he's going to go via the Samaritans. And he's got a group that have gone ahead of him like some kind of an advanced party. Look at verse 53, please. And they did not receive him. Because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Yes, of course. First of all, the Jewish Messiah came for the Jews in Jerusalem, in Israel. And every so often he would deviate and he would heal Gentiles. He would get Gentiles saved. He would speak to the Samaritans, which were half uh, Jewish. 
half Gentile. They were cross between being a Jew and a Gentile. I guess today you would suggest they were like the Aborigines, perhaps, in Australia, who were treated very badly by the Australians uh, 200 years ago. And the Brits also treated such people very badly. They thought they were subhuman. Going back to Darwinism, look at 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? They were saved. All the apostles were saved, I believe, during the time of the Lord's life and ministry on the earth. But their attitude is all wrong. They're angry. And I don't think necessarily it's uh, justified anger. Look at 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are of. So if they weren't wrong to speak out in the way that they did, he wouldn't have rebuked them. He rebuked them because they were wrong, saved, and yet their hearts needed further work. They needed to be discipled, going back to bring every thought captive to the Lord, cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So I see these verses from Luke chapter 9 and I'll close in verse 56 and then take you back to 2 Corinthians. Look at 56 if you will. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went to another village. They were thinking of Elijah and go back to 2 Corinthians please and they were thinking that well Elijah called fire down from heaven Elijah had people burnt up Elijah was a very cruel sort of guy Elijah was a very stern sort of chap but of course Elijah was a Jew under the law and yes there's a great difference between the law and grace the Old Testament and the New Testament a major difference and people say well the idea of being a dispensationalist is foreign to scripture no it's not if you were living under the Old Testament if you were a gentleman living under the Old Testament, and you weren't circumcised, or your sons weren't circumcised, you risked being put to death. If you were a woman living under the Old Testament, and you didn't dress like a Jew under the Old Testament, you were ostracized. If you were a man or woman under the Old Testament, and you didn't watch what you uh, would eat, you were frozen out. There's a major difference. For the New Testament, the Lord doesn't care what you eat. He doesn't care if you're circumcised or not. He doesn't care what you wear. He couldn't care less. He wants to know if you're born again. There's a major difference. So people say, well, there's no difference between the Old and the New Testament. Of course there is. In the Old Testament, people had their sins covered but not forgiven. In the Old Testament, if you died believing in the one true God, you couldn't go straight to heaven. You went to Abraham's bosom. Today, if a saved person that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ dies, they go straight to be with the Lord. What Paul say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I mean, you can't match that. You can't improve that there's a major difference between the old and the new testament for we walk in the flesh 10 3 we do not walk after the flesh so they're not going around with weapons they're not going around killing people like the inquisition or like isis for we walk in the flesh old nature new nature we do not walk after the flesh so this is a spiritual expression for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, like weapons, like guns, like sticks, like knives, like swords, you understand. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. At the same time, Paul's got in mind the potential dangers of demons, devils, unclean spirits wanting to mess you up. And I'll tell you something, if you are saved, if you are living for the Lord, 
If you are ambitious for the Lord, you will have so many problems. I mean, so many problems. You'll have physical issues. You'll have spiritual issues. You will see things. You will hear things that only saved people are aware of. I can tell you something. I've been saved 15 years. And by the grace of God, for the last two or three years, we've been able to uh, prepare three outreaches every year. And most people wouldn't prepare for one outreach But we've been able to prepare for three outreaches. And that takes a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of planning. At the same time, the moment you start to plan an outreach, the devil gets very busy. He will come at you from all different angles and ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. And most people, if they're not consecrated, would just fall by the side. They couldn't handle it. So Paul knows that the Corinthians are up against, on the one hand, a satanic assault through their minds like Are you really saved? Are you really living it? If you're not living it, you might lose it. And on the other hand, is Paul the real thing? Maybe he's a fake. Are his uh, epistles trustworthy? Maybe we shouldn't be reading his epistles. If you take the time to read secular historians, they love to criticize the Apostle Paul. Book after book after book after book comes out every year, slamming the Apostle Paul, slamming his epistles. And yet those people wouldn't dare criticize Muhammad. They wouldn't dare do a critique or a review of the Quran or the, or the Hadith. They wouldn't dare speak about Muhammad being a warlord who slept with many women, sometimes children, was even suggested to be bisexual. They wouldn't dare report that. But they will take Paul on because they know in their hearts that he was the real deal and that if they can undermine him, they don't have to believe on the gospel that he preached, like the gospel of the grace of God. But also he wants to... Make it clear to those in Corinth, whether on the godly wing, if you will, or the ungodly wing, on the repentant wing or the unrepentant wing, that it was imperative for them and also for us that we are careful what comes into our minds. Casting down, look at verse 5 again, imaginations like being angry. Going back to Luke chapter 9 and in the passage concerning saved people. Yes, they were saved. Not born again, okay, fair enough, but they were saved through imputation. They were saved through their faith in the one true God and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Going back to Gnosticism or going back to the Catholic Church saying that there is more truth found outside of Holy Scripture, so-called. And if you want to have all of the truth, you have to be a Roman Catholic. Or if you want to have all of the truth, you have to be a Mormon. Or, if you want to have all of the truth, you have to be a Jehovah's Witness. That is going against the knowledge of God. And during a future message, I will speak about sola scriptura, simply meaning scripture alone. If you are born again, all you need is the scripture to get through each and every day. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Is it easy? No. It's very difficult, but it's not impossible. You wouldn't be told to do something if it wasn't possible. The Lord doesn't play games with his children. When he speaks about being perfect, for he is perfect, he wants you to be complete. He doesn't want you to be double-minded. It's not speaking about sinless perfection. You can't be sinless. Don't even go there. But you can be firm in your mind. You can be complete in your mind. There's no reason to be double-minded if you're born again. Six, and having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience, When your obedience is fulfilled. So a servant to the saviour. And an enemy 
against evil. If you are born again, you should be striving to serve the Savior. If you are born again, you have all of the tools that you need. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians that you are enriched in everything. You've got all that you need. He said over in Colossians 2.10 that you are complete in him. Over in Ephesians it says that you are reigning with Christ right now up in the heavenly places. So as far as your salvation is concerned, it's a done deal. That's good news. But each and every day your practical life may not always match up with your standing in the Lord. When he sees you, he sees his son. But that doesn't mean that you're not falling around in the mud. doesn't mean that you've got it all down. Hence why he's warning you here from 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, 10.4, and 10.6 to be careful what you think. Be very careful as to how you operate. Go to uh, Galatians chapter 2. Keep your hand in 2 Corinthians so it's not just about do's and don'ts. It's not just about be careful what you see or what you hear or what you say. That's all uh, pretty obvious. But in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, uh, look at 11, if you will, please. And when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. No infallibility, no impeccability. The apostle Peter was saved before the apostle paul not born again i don't believe until pentecost but he was saved nonetheless before paul arrived and here the context concerns the church in antioch and he got two wings once again you got the jewish wing and the gentile wing now for today we haven't got this sort of a problem for today most of us which are born again are gentile we're gentiles but for the early church it was probably 60 40 or 70 30 and the majority of those in the early church especially pre the arrival of the apostle paul were jewish hence why paul wanted money to take to the saints in jerusalem second corinthians 8 second corinthians 9 but here it says that peter has arrived in antioch and paul has faced him stood up to him confronted him if he was to be blamed, why look at 12? For before that, certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So Paul knew perfectly well that it's faith alone. Peter knew perfectly well that it was faith alone. Acts chapter 15. But Peter, like most men, was weak. And I think it comes down to this. I think that there was a side of uh, Peter which was somewhat racist. And people don't like to think of an apostle being somewhat racist. People think that Gentiles can be racist towards Jews. And that's certainly true. But it goes both ways. And I think this is uh, partly what uh, Paul is concerned about. There was a side of Peter going back to Acts chapter 10. When uh, Cornelius wanted to meet him. And uh, part of Peter's uh, dialogue with the servants of Cornelius was somewhat abrupt. You know, he would say, what are, you, what are you doing here? The Jews have no dealing with the Gentiles. Very self-righteous, but also bordering, I think, just perhaps a touch of racism. And you say, really? Yes, really. And you say, why? Well, that's Peter's old nature. That's why, uh, I think, anyway, the Lord chose uh, Paul to go to the Gentiles and not Peter. Because he knew what Peter was like, a bit like Jonah. Jonah hated the Gentiles. The Lord had to almost kill Jonah to get him to go to Nineveh and preach to them. 
I mean, people say, you know, irresistible grace. I can't find it in scripture. I can't find irresistible grace anywhere. I find Jehovah having to almost kill Jonah to get him to go to Nineveh. 13. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. He's also being caught up in this hypocrisy, in this shameful behavior. You've got saved Jews that started off sitting with the Gentiles, eating with the Gentiles, praying with the Gentiles, and then some character or two comes from the mother church, uh, Acts chapter 15, and starts to whisper in the ears of uh, Peter and Barnabas that the Gentiles aren't really legit, not really on the same par as uh, the Jews, that the Gentiles are still an inferior people, a bit like the character who was clashing with Paul in Corinth. And Paul knew that this had to be stamped on. But people don't like to think that perhaps racism can go from a Jew to the Gentile. Of course it can. None of us are good. Go back to the Jonah uh, account if you need to further understand this. 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? You are a Jew, Peter. You should be ashamed of yourself. You would deny the Lord three times. You were rebuked three times. You would argue with the Lord, Acts chapter 10, and the Lord would have to rebuke you, Acts chapter 10. And here, once again, Peter has fallen foul. Saved? Absolutely. And yet, Galatians 1, Paul says that if someone comes to you with another gospel, and technically this is what I think Peter is temporarily guilty of, let him or her be accursed. You say, surely not. Absolutely. But he was born again. Yes, he was. He was sinless. No, he wasn't. He's just like you and I. He has an old nature. And I think, if my understanding is correct, there's a touch of racism here. A sense that the Jews are still a superior people and the Gentiles are an inferior people. Going back to the Aborigines in Australia or going back to the blacks in America during the time of slavery. And most of those people that were trading in the slave industry, in the slave industry were Darwinists. Charles Darwin thought that the white man was superior to the black man. You couldn't say that now in a college or university. You'd be fired. But he believed that. And his followers, 18th, 19th and early 20th century, also believed that. But the scripture says that we've all sinned. Jew or Gentile and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what Paul doesn't want people to mess up on. He can't stand the thought of this two-tier system. I mean, listen, it's bad enough to find the Nicolaitans from the book of Revelation, like the clergy and the laity. That's bad enough. And it says that the Lord hates such a setup. But Paul wasn't going to allow this two-tier system to exist in his day. He wasn't going to allow the Jews to keep the Gentiles down. He knew that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's what Romans is all about. We've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Look at 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That is music to my ears. 
I can't be saved by my works. You can't be saved by your works. In the context, he's saying to Peter, who was a Jew all of his life, and Barnabas, who was a Jew all of his life, that the law, like the Ten Commandments, couldn't save anyone. You try and keep the law. You try and keep the spirits or the letter of the law. Good luck. You can't do it. No one's justified by the works of the law, 16, but by the faith. Faith alone, sola fide of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. He includes himself and he includes Peter and Barnabas. He knew that Peter was saved. He knew that Barnabas was saved, but they were wrong. They'd gone completely off the rails. That we might be justified, exonerated by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So again, that's what Paul has in mind go back to second corinthians chapter 10 the proverbs or the writer of the proverbs being solomon says that as a man thinks in his heart so he is that's pretty extreme if you are a man lusting after a woman you are an adulterer if you are a woman lusting after man you are an adulterer if you are a man lusting after a child you are a pedophile if you are somebody with unjust anger in your heart you are a murderer if you are a woman who has a hatred for a brother in the Lord, according to First John chapter 3, you might not be saved. I mean, this is profound. It's not just about be careful what you see online or be careful what you hear on the radio or be, or, or be careful what you say, like what's your language. Don't use four-letter words. Don't uh, use blasphemy. Don't be crude. Don't be uh, guilty of uh, foolish jesting. It goes far deeper than that. Look at Luke 9. Look at uh, Galatians 2. I mean, save people. Messing around, preaching another gospel. Paul having to confront Peter. I mean, humiliating for Peter. He would have said to his friends, I was chosen long before Paul was for service. And this guy is telling me in front of my peers that I am wrong. Of course he was. Who does he think he is? And yet Peter would have to accept the rebuke. Jesus Christ would rebuke James and John. These sons of Zebedee, Luke chapter 9, for wanting to consume the Samaritans. If you think of John Calvin, or if you think of some of the Puritans that made it to America, they were very uh, unfriendly, shall we say. They would have had no time for someone like myself, a non-Calvinist. Casting down imaginations, Second Corinthians 10, 5, And every high thing that exalted itself, exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Incredibly difficult. And having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience. When your obedience is fulfilled. So chosen for service. Be holy for I am holy. Like I say you become a servant to the saviour. And a rebel against sin. But we're not through yet. Keep your hand in Second Corinthians 10. And go to 3 John. 3 John, a tiny epistle, which I was able to record during our outreach to Switzerland. And in 3 John, you could so easily miss a very interesting uh, piece of scripture. 3 John, 3 John, look at verse 9 if you will. I wrote unto the church, but dear Trephus, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Diotrephus, some kind of a leader in the early church, an elder, a man with some kind of authority, is outside of the apostles' authority, shall we say. 
He's doing his own thing. He is some kind of a one-man band. I wrote under the church, this is John speaking, but Diotrephus, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. This guy has a very high view of himself. Could be saved. Ten, wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that word, and cast them out of the church. You've got a guy here, a leader of a church, in uh, John's jurisdiction, shall we say, and he's fallen foul like uh, Peter would do. He's fallen foul like James and John would do. Same guy, John the Apostle. Lord, call fire down from heaven, burn them all up, undeserving reprobates. And the Lord says, shut your mouth, John. I've come to save these people. Again, it could just be that there was a side of John which was perhaps racist, like Peter. But Lord, the Gentiles are unclean. They eat foods that we don't eat. They don't dress like we dress. They don't worship like we do. Most of their men aren't circumcised. They are pagans. They're unclean savages, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus says, listen, I've come for them and I've come for you. And he would make the case from, uh, I think it's John 13, that it was imperative to clean each other's feet. And the apostle said, no way. In fact, Peter would say that you won't wash my feet, Lord. And the Lord said, well, if I can't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part with me. And that shook Peter up. He knew that he wanted to stay on the right side of the Lord. And yet later he would deny the Lord. You see, when you talk about people, when you talk about people as saved people, when you talk about people being in the body of Christ and being sinless, depending on who you speak to, many times such people haven't really thought this through. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth. Pratting against us with malicious words. Now, for the benefits of this chap, I would suggest that he was a saved man. I don't know that he wasn't saved. And it's like I said before, always give a person or the scripture the benefits of the doubt. And not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren. And forbiddeth them that would, and cast them out, and casteth them out of the church. This guy thought he was top dog. Go back to Second Corinthians 10. And he wasn't going to be told what to do. He was perhaps like Judge Rutherford. Or perhaps like Charles Taze Russell. Or perhaps like Joseph Smith. Or perhaps like one of the popes. Or perhaps like a Jesuit. In fact, I remember listening to a radio debate some years ago between a Jesuit and a Protestant. And this guy phoned up, an ex-Catholic. And he said, I've got a question for Mr. Pacquois. And uh, Mr. Pacqua, if you don't know, is a Jesuit. His name is Mitchell Pacqua. And he said, uh, no, my name is Father Pacqua. You will address me as Father Pacqua. And this guy said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you Mr. Pacqua because it says over in Matthew uh, 23, don't call anyone father, meaning a spiritual, you know, in a spiritual sense. Don't call anybody, don't call anybody rabbi, like in a spiritual sense. And don't call anybody master, like Master Mason. In a spiritual sense. So you know straight away that the term Master Mason is out. Rabbi is out. And Father is out. Concerning spiritual titles. And this priest. This American priest. Who's still alive incidentally. Wouldn't take the question. Until the caller capitulated. Until the caller went along with Pacqua's demand. You will call me Father Pacqua. I am a father of the church. I'm a Jesuit. 
I spent 14 years studying, and he had done. And it went back and forth, back and forth. And in the end, I seemed to recall that the caller had to capitulate. And I thought, what a shame. But to be fair to the caller, he probably spent 20 minutes waiting to get on the air, and he's probably paying for the call. And in the end, he unfortunately addressed Pat quite as father. Um, and the, you know, the question was put to the priest. I forget what the question was. But it's the same kind of thing. Pat Quar is a bit like this guy, Diotrephus, from uh, Three John. He has a high view of himself. He wants to be addressed as father. And John, as a saved Jew, is addressing this chap, probably a Gentile. And he says that when I arrive there, I will deal with him. Again, two natures in the believer, two natures of the believer. I am saved 100%. And yet there's a part of me, Luke 9, 51 to 56, Galatians 2, 11 to 16, 3 John 9 to 10, which is no good. What did Paul say? In me, being in my flesh, being in my blood, being in my DNA, dwelleth no good thing. And yet people, some people, think that when you get saved, you are sinless, you're perfect, you won't ever fall or stumble. And if you do fall and stumble, you're not saved. Absolutely ridiculous. And I would say that those people are biblical illiterates. They are Biblical literates, they are in denial, they have deluded themselves, and above all, I would suggest they are guilty from Second Corinthians 10 of coming against the knowledge of God. And therefore, as a result, they haven't brought every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and they have fallen into legalism, which most of these people are guilty of, and perhaps behind closed doors, carnality as well. And we've just scratched the surface of Second Corinthians chapter 10, which, like I say, is week 22, broadcast number 22. And around this time, we've just passed the 13-hour mark. So I'll hold it there from verse 6 and return next week to drill somewhat deeper into this fascinating epistle. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And last week, we got up to verse 7. But uh, just to set the context for today, I want to read the first six verses one more time, if I may. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So once again, it's about thought life. And if you have the wrong type of thoughts, like on a permanent or a regular basis, you'll become shipwrecked. You'll have the wrong concept of Christ, and you'll start to go into the wrong gear. In fact, just yesterday, a guy walked over to us. He saw our banner, and we got talking, and it turns out that he's very much into baptism or regeneration. And we discussed the dangerous belief that water can save you. And when I say we discussed it, maybe 25 minutes. And this man is a pastor of a local church. And I was quite distressed to hear him go to scripture after scripture to argue that one is saved by being baptized in water. 
and I say to him that's a Catholic heresy, which unfortunately the reformers retained, like Calvin, like Luther and Zwingli. And I said to him, and on top of that, to teach that his doctrine is what Paul speaks about from Galatians chapter 1. It's another gospel. It can't save you. It, can, you know, it will condemn you. And he looked kind of shocked that I would say that. And he said to me, can we pray about this? And I said, no. We only need to pray if we're not sure about a particular situation. There's no doubt in my mind. I don't need to have any clarification on this. Uh, it, says, it says over in Romans, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I am completely clear in my mind. In fact, Paul would tell us from 1 Corinthians that he wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. But the context from 2 Corinthians 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 is about your thought life. It's about having the right type of thoughts on a regular basis. And it's like this. I remember speaking to a friend some years ago who got saved. And he used to be very much into boxing at a almost professional level. And he said to me that when he got saved, he quit uh, watching boxing matches. He quit participating in boxing matches. And he said to me, I can still remember participating in such a sport, seeing such a sport. And I would say, kill him, kill him, knock him down, take him down, kill him, kill him. And I thought he's absolutely right. I remember growing up watching all the uh, Rocky movies in the 1980s, Rocky 1, Rocky 2, 3, 4, 5. And you get caught up in the momentum or Rambo. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And you don't mean it literally, of course, but you start to get carried away with the momentum. And this guy got saved. And I think like most people, he found himself in that transition period from coming out of that particular world and I think for a short period of time, he continued to go to boxing matches and continued to participate you know, in boxing uh, sports. And he was reminded, I think perhaps not haunted, but he could still recall his feelings of kill him, kill him, knock him down, take him down, etc., etc. The same can be true of computer games. You start to play computer games. And I was never mad for computer games growing up but I know today it's a huge industry it's a massive industry a lot of adults play computer games and I've had emails over the years from brothers around the world who are very much into computer games and they've asked me for my view on it and I said well you know you have liberty in the Lord but it's not necessarily going to be very beneficial for you if you spend a lot of time playing computer games and it's the same kind of thing you start to play your computer game get the old well, as it was in my day, the joystick out, and, you know, it's Pac-Man, or it's this, or it's that, you know, and you try and kill the baddie, or you try and get some points, or you try and rescue the princess, all that sort of nonsense. You start to get carried away within the game itself, and your heart starts to drift from the Lord. This is just simple stuff. It goes back to what Paul is speaking about here. But, of course, he's aiming this at the Judaizers. He's aiming this at those that were offering themselves as holy and thou. In fact, again, just yesterday, some guy came over to us and he saw Martin with the banner and he walked over to Martin. I was preaching and I could see by his demeanor that he wasn't uh, particularly friendly. And he was standing, for my liking, too close to Martin. I mean, right next to him. In fact, just two minutes earlier, two police officers walked past us, saw myself and uh, Brother Martin no problems, walked past us, came back three minutes later, and they saw this chap, 
this black man too near to Martin. I mean, like almost nose to nose, far too near. And even they could pick up this man's demeanour. And they stopped, turned around a few times because they were expecting some kind of an altercation. And I finished preaching and I went over to where this chap was standing next to our good friend, Brother Martin. And his voice was getting more and more louder. And he was speaking about the Sabbath. He was speaking about the law. He was uh, making some derogatory comments, which I'll discuss in a few moments' time. And I tried to diffuse it. And I said to him, how are you? Nice to meet you. Are you born again? Completely blanked me. Gave me a filthy look. Continued to uh, lecture our good brother about this and that. And he stood his ground. Praise the Lord. And I started to discuss with this man about the gospel so on and so forth but i know perfectly well number one if we hadn't been there yesterday he wouldn't have come over if the apostle paul hadn't have hadn't had a good ministry if the apostle paul hadn't have been successful at winning souls this crowd wouldn't have been buzzing around <laughs> paul's ministry they won't waste five minutes hanging around a dead church they won't spend five minutes hanging around some apostate tv evangelist or some charlatan on youtube but if they see something that is really good they want to be a part of it and they were plaguing paul and his ministry they were going around rubbishing paul and i've discussed that a lot over the last few weeks and the same is true of what we were doing yesterday he saw a group of bible believers street preaching giving out tracts a banner and he thought to himself this this is kind of unusual i've seen people no doubt in this town doing what they do but i haven't seen somebody with a megaphone I haven't seen somebody with a banner up like Turn or Burn. I haven't seen a good number of people spread out. I'm going to go along. I'm going to interrogate them. I'm going to tie them up. It's going to be a nuisance. And I started to speak to this person. And I could tell that he wanted to have a good fight. And if I allowed him to, it would become physical. I believe that. And I used my diplomacy, so-called, <laughs> to defuse it. And off he went. But here... Paul is speaking about the thought life. He's speaking about you are what you think. And he speaks about walking in the flesh, verse 3, and not warring after the flesh. That goes back to the old man, Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 7, please. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. And I get sick and tired of people sometimes coming over to me and also Patrick and our brethren wanting to interrogate us, wanting to have us explain ourselves to them. And I know perfectly well, again, that if we weren't on the streets in this town or any town or any country, they wouldn't give you the time of day. We had maybe three or four people come over to us yesterday and over the last couple of days, asking us questions. What church do you go to? Where are you from? How do you define the gospel? What does born again mean? Etc, etc, etc. And yet you ask these people to explain the gospel to you. They're not interested. One guy came over to us a few days ago and spoke to one of the sisters. Same sort of questioning. Where are you from? What are you doing here? Um, are you born again? Blah, blah, blah. And I said to this individual, are you born again? And he said he was. And I said to him, so are you giving out tracts? No. Are you street preaching? No. And he turned around and walked off. And I shouted out to him, so it's a private religion, is it? But that's how it was. And I've had this for years, after years, after years, or many, many years. 
And I would suggest that if anybody else has ever done any street work, they get the, the, they get the same kind of people coming over to them with the same kind of questions. If any man trusts to himself, verse 7, that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. We're Christ's, we're born again. It may be that some of these people that I've spoken about this morning are also Christ's. I know that the body of Christ is incredibly diverse. I know that the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ has allowed the body of Christ to worship him in different ways, in different strands, on different continents, on different times of the week. I understand that. I'm not so quick to suggest that such people aren't saved. It's sometimes very easy to turn around and say he's not saved, she's not saved, but I don't really know that. I don't know what goes on in that person's heart. I don't know if they've just drifted into error, heresy, and uh, foolish and dangerous ideologies. I don't know that. So I like to give people the benefits of the doubt. And here, the Apostle Paul is also being incredibly gracious. Eight, for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. So they were saying that Paul was a scaremonger. They were saying that his letters would fill you with dread. In fact, just yesterday, a guy walked over to us and he said, uh, I am in uh, advertising <laughs> and your banner is very negative. And uh, one of the sisters said, well, how about antivirus? That's a very negative campaign. People say you must be up to date with your antivirus uh, software, your laptop, your iPad, your cell phone, your smartphone could easily be hacked, uh, could be contaminated. And they use scare tactics to sell you, and quite understandably, antivirus. Get a burglar alarm. Your house could be burgled, you know, could be robbed. Get insurance. Your house could be flooded or burnt to the ground. They use scare tactics. And this guy didn't want to hear our response. Didn't like the banner, except you repent. You should all likewise perish. And yet, let me say this one more time. I would put money on the fact that if we'd been Muslims, and if we'd had some verses from the Quran or the Hadith, which speaks about hellfire. In fact, Muhammad said, most of those people in hellfire are women. You know perfectly well he wouldn't have come over to you or the Muslims and interrogated them. He wouldn't have dared. But they see Christians as an easy touch. I'm going to come over. You guys are fair game. I'm going to pull you up. I'm going to challenge you. And Patrick said a few words to this party, and off he went. Nine, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. Yeah, some of Paul's epistles are pretty heavy, pretty firm. He speaks about the terror of the Lord. He says that we will all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He speaks about our works being judged. He says that some of our works will survive, others will not. He speaks about all of us having to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ when we die. That's pretty heavy. Yeah, absolutely. But he wasn't saying one thing and doing another. He says we, and he includes himself, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But go back to the context here. The context would be Judaizers. Perhaps saved, I don't know. I know Paul was very critical of this crowd from Galatians chapter 2. And he says that they went around offering themselves as this and that, you know, this or that, and they meant nothing to me. And Acts 15 picks this up. Paul goes up to the church in Jerusalem with some brothers. There's a big meeting. 
Peter has a, has a few words. James has a few words. Paul gets to discuss his take on the whole subject of faith alone. And letters are dispatched back to the Gentile churches. That's the context of this. But you've got a crowd going around, at least one guy trying to pull Paul down, trying to diminish Paul, trying to undermine Paul, going back to the truth of the matter that if you have a dead or a dry or a pretty indifferent sort of a ministry, chances are you're going to just rub along the world quite nicely. Satan won't spend five minutes causing the JWs any problems or the Mormons any problems or the Catholics, but if you are a King James Bible-believing Christian, once saved, always saved, pre-mill, pre-trib, street preacher, wow, you better look out. They're going to come after you. Ten, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. This is very interesting. His letters say they are weighty and powerful. That much would have been true. Semicolon. But his bodily presence is weak. And his speech contemptible. So this guy came over to us yesterday. And I say us, I mean Martin and I. And we got into a conversation with him. And at the end of this conversation, which has been filmed, incidentally. And I'll upload it sometime soon. He said, you guys are weak. You guys are sick. Meaning spiritually weak. Meaning spiritually sick. You guys have nothing to offer society because we were preaching repentance heaven and hell born again whereas this guy wants to keep the sabbat the sabbath he wants to do religion he's the crowd that paul would speak about from galatians if you get circumcised it profits you nothing you're falling from grace and i said to him you speak for yourself buddy i'm not weak i'm not sickly i don't feel inferior to you I may have the occasional virus or what have you, but by and large, I'm pretty healthy. And I stood up to this guy and he backed down, not before firing some abuse at us. I mean, racial abuse at us, which if we had done to him, can you imagine it? The police would have been called, cuffs, station, caught. But he can do it to us, but we can't do it to him. Well, I didn't rise to that. I just let it go, just leave it. But here, the goal is quite simply to attack Paul undermine his writings make fun of his bodily presence and his speech being contemptible meaning he knew he was saved and he knew that christ had been victorious on the cross and yes people do sometimes say you guys are very arrogant you're very sure of yourselves i've had uh, so-called christians say to me but we can't know that we're saved you can't know that you're saved and i've told these people well according to ephesians chapter 2 i'm already in heaven and they look at you like you're a moron They have no concept, going back to what we've been discussing over the last few days, justification, imputation, so on and so forth. Many of these people, if the truth be known, are back under the Old Testament, trying to do religion. But it says that Christ uh, became a curse for us. It says that Christ uh, became a sin offering for us. It says, for by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And I tried to uh, explain such to this black Gentleman, yesterday, very angry man, wanting us to uh, rise to the bait, wanting us to meet him on his own ground, as it were. And I thought, we're not going to do that. Again, we're not going to be dictated to. Going back to the guy in uh, Cambridge from our June outreach, wanting us to meet him on his grounds, on his terms. No way. We're not here to do that. We're not here to play this sort of a game. 
But I would say this with my hand on my heart, that if we hadn't been on the streets yesterday, that guy wouldn't have come sticking us out. That guy wasn't street preaching yesterday. That guy wasn't giving out tracts yesterday. He saw us and came over to us to interrogate us. Going back to my suggestion that such people are very quick to hang on to Paul, like a hanger-on. And this is the truth of the matter, that if you are successful, people are going to be hanging on, becoming a nuisance. 11. Let such and one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, when we are absent such, will we be also indeed when we are present. Let your yea be yea, let your nay be nay. Say what you mean, mean what you say, be a doer of the word. They were obviously suggesting that Paul was a hypocrite, that he was preaching one message and living another. Going back to the chap yesterday, you guys are weak, you guys are sick, you have no power, you have no authority, etc., etc., etc. Making a judgment on what we were doing. And you turn the tables and you say to these people, are you judging me? You're judging me for judging you. And you get into that whole game of people making a call, making a decision. His letters, weighty, powerful, bodily presence, weak, speech, contemptible. Not really, he was a scholar after all. Let such and one think this, that such as we are in word by letters, epistles, when we are absent, such when we are present. Pretty self-explanatory. He doesn't want people to misrepresent him. He doesn't want people to think that he would say one thing and do something completely different. Verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. This is a major problem. Somebody gets saved and they find someone who they think is a good brother, could be, or a good sister, could be. And they start to compare themselves to brother A or sister A. And they start to say, well, he can do this, I can't do this. Or she can do this, but I can't do this. And they get into this whole mindset of, why can't I be like him? Or why can't I be like her? For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Well, if he can do it, why can't I do it? Or if she can do it, why can't I do it? This is what goes on every day of the week in organized religion. They say, well, he makes money off his books, off his DVDs. Why can't I make money off my books, off my DVDs? He gets a good, comfortable tithe. Why can't I get a good, comfortable tithe? She does this. Why can't I do this? They've got a nice big church. Why can't we have a nice big church? 13. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Okay, so it goes back to being content, to be content with your station in life, to be content with what you have. It's not easy, of course, and I've made references over the years that many times people appear online and they start to produce videos and some of the videos are very good and they come across somebody else who's also making the same type of video and they've got more of a following they are more successful they're more wealthy in fact just last week i came across one particular video attacking another uh, ministry and this other ministry is very very popular on youtube i mean super popular 
tens of thousands of subscribers, and the money's pouring in. They call it Google monolization, I think is the term, and they make money off the views. That people, every time you click on a video on YouTube, uh, the video owner makes money off it. We've never agreed to that at our ministry, but many people do agree to that. And Google pay you. It's called, I think, pay, pay per click. I don't quite understand how it works, but if you get a lot of traffic on your videos, Google will say, we'd like to uh, partner with you. And you get money. And what happens is if you click on a video, and this, this is how dangerous this can be, you find a, a Christian video, and I've seen many on YouTube, and you start to watch it, and on the right-hand side of the screen, something like Islamic dating comes up on a Christian channel. And you've got an, an Islamic woman looking for an Islamic man, or vice versa. This is the dangers you see. YouTube don't care who you are. They see religion as all being the same. And I've seen some very popular Christian channels. I won't name them, or maybe I should. But anyway, I've seen some very popular channels, like 60,000, 70,000 views. And you click on it, you start watching it. And this woman comes up. She's a Muslim woman looking for a Muslim man. Or I've seen Jewish uh, commercials come up on the screen. Or read the Bible in Hebrew. Or visit the Holy Land. Stuff like that. People making money, you see. And YouTube are going to cash in on that. Unlike Paul, and 1 Corinthians makes it very clear that he was on many occasions going without food. He was suffering. He was uh, not always clothed. He was struggling. His life was really, really difficult, like Jesus Christ. He would say the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Paul the Apostle was very similar. In fact, by the end of Acts of the Apostles, he was under house arrest. Couldn't have been easy for him. Couldn't travel very far. And I would imagine two years under house arrest on the outskirts of Rome. Yes, beautiful weather-wise, but not much doing on the ministry front. People could go and visit him, it says. They were able to speak to him. He wasn't hindered from receiving guests. But the point is this, he couldn't travel. He was almost blind. And people came forth and probably covered his rent for him. 14. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labours, but having hope when your faith is increased, that we should be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. Number one, don't piggyback on someone else's ministry. Number two, get the gospel out. Don't just preach in your own little part of the world. Go further afield if you can, like we are doing at present. And yet many people will piggyback on the backs of other people's ministries. 1989, 1990, a well-known American evangelist was taken to court. What happened? He was found guilty of plagiarizing someone else's writings, someone's commentary on the book of Revelation. And this well-known American evangelist went to court and he was sued. And I seem to recall there was a $10 million out-of-court settlement. What happened? This very well-known American evangelist came across somebody's commentary on the book of Revelation, decided to plagiarize it, like word for word, was caught. And the estate of this late evangelist who had died some years before sued him. 
went to court, and like I say, he had to settle out of court. It is fair to say that Christians will sometimes pinch bits of other people's materials, or they'll use certain sound bites. That seems to be an unagreed, acceptable way of doing things. Classical composers will do this. Classical composers will pinch bits from Mahler, bits from Beethoven, bits from Tchaikovsky, and it's understood to be okay. But if you steal an entire movement, or if you steal an entire opera, or if you plagiarize an entire commentary, that's out of order. I mean, 22 chapters from Revelation, word for word, that's theft. Going back to what I spoke about a few days ago. And this guy in America didn't care about it, wasn't bothered, thought he could get away with it, and he was challenged by this estate, like I say, and had to settle out of court. Same sort of thing. Piggybacking on someone else's ministry, plagiarizing other people's writings, I mean verbatim, I mean page after page, book after book, and saying, hey, look at this, this is my latest book on Revelation. No, it's not, you liar. You've copied it from someone else. Sure, you can take bits, and if you do, you should always credit the person, of course. You can refer to people's writings, you can dip into other people's works, like Mahler would do with Tchaikovsky, would do with Beethoven, Wagner, or even with popular music like Riddle, Billy May, Gordon Jenkins. They've all done it. They've all copied bits of other people's styles. And of course, those people were all friends. does help. If you're friendly with someone, you'd say, okay, I know that Nelson's pinched some of Billy's music and Gordon's pinched some of such and such's music or the theme, the style. But when you copy an entire work, a two-hour opera, that's theft. And this guy in America got his fingers burnt. Paul couldn't have been accused of that. In fact, this guy I spoke to yesterday concerning water baptism. I said to him, but Paul preached the gospel of the grace of God. And this guy took me to Acts chapter 2, that you are baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. But hold on a minute. Who is baptized in the name of Jesus today for the remission of sins? When I got baptized in Israel, I was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that there isn't a person in England today or around the world who hasn't been baptized in the name of Jesus like the oneness people. But if you are a Trinitarian, you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And this guy was saying about Acts chapter 2, forget Acts chapter 2, that's not for us. That was aimed at Israel. Peter was a Jew preaching on Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast day. There are Jews present, no Gentiles. And I thought, how could somebody get so confused over this? And I said to him, again, you are preaching another gospel. Galatians chapter 1. You are obsessed with water. At best, water is a type of the blood. At best. But the water can't do anything. It says in Hebrews, for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. No forgiveness of sins. What would John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sin of the world. For us, it's very simple. But for so many people, it is not. 17. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Absolutely. When we first arrived here, I was able to do some street preaching. I went to 
Second Corinthians chapter four, I think it was, which speaks about we preach Christ Jesus crucified. We don't preach ourselves. Our tracks are ninety-eight percent, and there's some I can't see any on the table now. Ninety-eight percent Bible. Ninety-eight percent Bible. Verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four. Website address, but it's tiny. Verses on either side. Who you are, what you are, who God is, what God is. You must be born again. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What would John the Baptist say? He must increase. I must decrease. 18 and I'll close. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Of course. We don't send ourselves out. We don't do this off our own backs. We do this because we were told to do this. Going to all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. In fact, this guy, one more time from yesterday, took me to Mark 16. And he said, but there you are, you see, it says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And I said, yeah, but keep reading on. And he that believeth not shall be damned. It doesn't say, he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. It says, he that believeth not shall be damned. You are saved by believing. You are damned by not believing. You go to hell because you didn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in hell, you pay for your sins. It could be 101 sins, but you don't go to heaven because you got baptized. Once you get saved, yes, okay, get baptized. But baptism plays no part at all in anyone's salvation. I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Galatians chapter 3 says, you got saved by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10. Hearing the word of God, and that's what got you saved. You heard the gospel, it was preached to you, and you said to yourself, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that Christ died for my sins. And you believed on him, you received him. But most people are going around saying that it's faith and works, and they put water or confession into the equation. In fact, some guy came up to us when we first arrived here and he said, what comes first, confession or baptism? And I said to him, confession. Oh no, he said, it's baptism. I said, you're wrong. I've met three people this week, three people that have all come come over to us with the same foolish philosophy that it's baptism, then it's confession. No, you confess with your mouth if you want to use that from Romans 10, that Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, and you are saved, justified, and then you get baptized. I won't spend time explaining how this works uh, when we look at uh, Romans 4 and James chapter 2. That's another subject for another day. So 18 verses in total from Second Corinthians chapter 10, and of course Paul is up against it. He's having to deal with these people that are going around trying to undermine him. He wants the Corinthians and vicariously all of us that's around this table this morning and those listening around the world to be very careful about their thought life because the wrong type of thoughts can lead to depression, anxiety and despair. It's so easy to slip into depression. It's so easy to slip into anxiety. It's so easy to slip into being despondent, just disgruntled, just distraught, and you say to yourself, I can't do anything, I'm a failure, etc., etc., etc. No, you're not. If you're saved, you're greatly beloved. If you're saved, the Lord thinks the world of you. 
If you're saved, he wants you to do something for him. He has no qualms as to what you do. It could be something very small. It could be just leaving maybe five tracks on public transport once a week. It could be leaving emails or messages on secular forums. It could be just speaking to mothers at your kid's school. It could be something so simple. No one has to stand on a street corner doing what we do. What we do is kind of specialist, and yet, in reality, it's something which Brits have always done, not in recent years, of course, but going back over the last two or 300 years. So guard your thought life, going back to my reference to Luke 9, 51 to 56. Be careful how you approach other people, going back to Galatians two eleven to 16. In fact, I remember speaking to her sister a very long time ago, and she told me that she went to visit a local church in her area, a brethren church, and I forget what she was going up there uh, for, and she knocked on the door, and the service had just finished, and she knew the husband of the person she wanted to see, and the wife opened the door, looked at her as if she was a dragon, some odd-looking woman, and she said said to me she felt very... um, very cold she felt cold she felt very unwanted and the lady said to her what are you doing who are you and she said i've come to see your husband such and such and she stood there with this veil over her whole face and she said well he's just finishing up in the church didn't ask her into the house and she said well i want to leave something for such and such a person and from what i can remember he didn't come out to see her because he was just wrapping up the sunday service and I think she felt very isolated. She was a saved woman. And this brethren couple, very well-to-do couple, for memory, she was a doctor and he was an accountant, lived in a huge house in South London. I mean, like half a million pound house. Very successful, very wealthy, never did street work. But the point is that they treated her with contempt. They treated her like John treated the Samaritans like Peter, treated the Gentiles from Galatians chapter 2. And I said too, I do hope, you know, you know, you never go back again. I hope you don't get caught up with that couple again. And I think she was quite happy to disappear from such a setup. Guard your thought lives. Guard what you think, how you think. Going back to 3 John 9 to 10 concerning the Trephus or Diotrophus, the leader of an early church, who was freezing people out. He was saying that you're not as holy as I am. You haven't got an anointing like I have. I know that I'm the real deal. I know that I'm in the line of the apostles. And you guys are just vermin, just immaterial people like the Samaritans or like the Pharisees would say to those that Christ would heal. Same kind of thing. God, what you think? God, how you speak to other people? Don't piggyback on other people's ministries. I could name probably three or four ministries, maybe five ministries that I know, I'm 99% sure, are copying other people's ministries. I mean, I could think of some people, I shan't name them, although I probably should, but I won't, that have read a lot of books from one particular uh, writer, he's now dead, and they have retained a lot of what he wrote, and they are teaching His writings, they are uh, mirroring his ministry, and people think that they are wonderful. And all they are doing is regurgitating someone else's works. 
I can think of one chap who I shan't name, who I know for a fact has been able to speed read. And we discussed him earlier this week, and he has been able to read a lot of writings from one particular party who's now long dead, and he was able to offer them as his own. But I won't name him this morning. Paul was condemned for having weak bodily presence. His speech was contemptible, but not really. Nothing wrong with being assured of one's salvation. Nothing wrong with boasting in the cross of Christ. That's what this is all about. And we get that uh, put to us as well. Preach Christ far and wide if you can. Don't just stay in your own little environments, pushing your own church. If you can, go far and wide. And finally, don't write up a false report. Don't pretend to be achieving something which you're not achieving. We discussed this this morning before the service. A lot of people, a lot of missionaries go overseas. And many times they are sponsored uh, financially from those back home. And they have to provide weekly reports. And they are expected to offer a lot of material, a lot of feedback. And they say, uh, Pastor A did this and his wife did that. Pastor A went here and his wife went there. They gave out 10,000 tracks, spoke to 400 people, 10 people got baptized. And if you are living back in your country and you are sending money overseas to such a missionary, you want to know that your money's being well spent. And I guess it's, it must be like if you work for the secular news in this country, you have to generate news. You can't say, no news this week, people. It's been a very quiet week. We've just stayed at home, did a bit of gardening, did some housework. You can't say that. You have to explain, you have to report something back to the mother church. And like in the UK, on the news channels, it's been a very busy day, a very busy week, and they have to make up new stories. Same is true of missionaries. In fact, I went to Romania in '02, and I spent a week with an American couple. And I know I've spoken about them in the past, both now with the Lord. And I remember speaking to Ron, the husband, and he was from, I think, Atlanta or Texas, from memory. And he told me that him and, him and his wife had to write a regular weekly report back to their church in America. And he told me that his ministry cost $5,000 a month to keep it up and running, 5000 a month. And that was 15, 14, 13 years ago. And, of course, that covers salaries, that covers the cost of the homes. They looked after uh, single mothers, elderly people, disabled people. And he said to me that his wife, Sue, and him had to send weekly emails back to America because they want to know where the money's being spent. And I didn't read the reports. That's not my business. But you wonder sometimes what Ron and Sue would report. I mean, to spend... To put, a, to put a couple of hours aside, maybe every Sunday night, and type up what you've done throughout the week, takes time. And if it's been a quiet week, it's not much fun. I'll tell you something else. Brother Ron didn't street preach. And I said to him, let's go down to uh, Bucharest. Let's do some street work. He said, uh, we have to go and visit this home now. We have to go and see such and such people. And I went with him, and I got up and gave some testimonies, some talks. And he said to me, but don't preach on the rapture, he said. We don't believe in the rapture here. I thought, ah, okay. And I couldn't preach on the rapture. 
and I had to preach on the second coming of Christ. And all I could say was, well, Christ could come back at any moment. I couldn't be specific. They didn't believe in the rapture. They were post-trip. I didn't know that. I'd been saved six months. I didn't know about all these differences in the body of Christ. And I had to respect their wishes. And these kids were turning up. These elderly people were turning up. Street people. One lady was blind. One guy was crippled. Dirt poor. But had a real good spirit. You know, you could tell they loved the Lord. The real deal. And they came into this place in uh, Bucharest. There was a tree going through the ceiling. Broken up floor. It was really basic. Going back to uh, to Chasco's brutal police state. And I thought, this is a real thing. This is real Christianity. And I was so privileged to get up and speak about Jesus Christ and why I was saved. But I've gone way over time. So we'll close it there and uh, pick it up next week from Second Corinthians chapter 11.